Welcome to episode 10 of the Counterforce Podcast. I'm your host, Aug Stone. We were just listening to a bit of Let's Talk About It by White Denim, a track chosen by our guest today, Tipex. I'm psyched to have our first comics artist on the show, and Tipex has just put out a dazzling biography of Andy Warhol called Andy, a factual fairy tale, the life and times of Andy Warhol. Seriously, this book is gorgeous. The first thing you'll notice is that the edges of the pages are all shiny silver, and then when you open it, the art and story inside is just so impressive. I had to read it quickly to get it done before Tipex and I spoke, but now I'm reading it again to review for the Comics Journal, and it's great to be able to take my time and appreciate all the little details that are on every page. Warhol's life is told in ten parts, each section done in a different artistic style that evokes the period it's taking place in. The chapter dedicated to the Velvet Underground is one of my favorites, with the art evoking Belgian artist Guy Pellart's The Adventures of Jodel. It, it's so 60s. I first met Tipex at the Angoulême Comics Festival in 2014. I had interviewed Yosh Svarte for The Quietest a little before that, and there's a certain magic that happens at Angoulême. My very first day there, I went into a cafe for some lunch, and Yost was sitting there with some friends. So I introduced myself, and Yost is such a lovely man, he invited me to a Dutch party that night. And when I got there, he said, do you know my friend Tipex? And motioned to this very cool-looking, very laid-back guy with long hair and a tiny mustache, who I would soon find out had done a brilliant comics biography of Rembrandt. I kept running into Tipex that weekend, and we talked a lot about music and art. He told me how we used to do comics reviews of concerts in Amsterdam, and we talked about that in the interview coming up. The next year at Angoulême, in 2015, we'd hang out a lot again, and he showed me some very early sketches of this Andy book and told me his ambitious plans for it. So now it's here, all 562 pages of it, and I highly recommend you pick it up. It took him five years to complete, and we talk a lot about the process of making it, which involved trips to New York, Pittsburgh, and a whole lot of research. So without further ado, tell me about when you first fell in love with comics as a kid. Oh, we're going way back. Well, that's about as far as I can remember. I remember um, we had this um, in Holland. Uh, when you don't have the money to to have this um, to have a magazine at home, you can you can have a sort of choice of magazines that are all already run out of date, and they put them together in a sort of portfolio, and you pay like I don't know what would be like three euros. A month, and you get a wide array of magazines for free at home, and it gets cheaper down the line. You know, every the, the magazines get older and cheaper every next move. So you have this. Do, do you understand what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Is there anything like that in uh, in in the UK or the US? Not that I know of. No. Probably not. No, I don't think we have it anymore. Anyway, so I had um, a wide choice of magazines, but they were all out of date. So I had Piru, the Dutch version of Spiru and of Tintin and some other Dutch comics also. So I had a lot of comics, but they were all out of date. So I would read the, the Christmas issue in, in, in March or something. But um, we had them even before I could read. And I distinctly remember myself trying to figure out what, how a comic worked. Like you go from one image to another one. And what fascinated me most was Obviously, they spoke in balloons that I got real quick, but there were these other balloons, you know, the the cloud form balloons with the little dots under it, and it took me a long time before I figured out that must be what they think. 
So that was sort of my first <laughs> Eureka experience. So that fascinated me so much uh, from the start. And I really, I couldn't wait to, to, to be able to read them. So as far as I remember, I was always really, um, yeah, a big fan of all comics. And uh, later on when I, uh, so basically I, I learned to read, to, to, uh, to be able to read comics. And later on, um, an auntie uh, moved to, uh, to the U.S. and she asked me, is there anything I can get you? And then I asked, yes, uh, a subscription to uh, Mad Magazine. So before I could read English, I already had Mad Magazine delivered at home, which was the coolest you could get. And um, I don't know, I was 10 or something, 10 years old. So, um, so I learned English from, from basically from music and from uh, trying to decipher Mad Magazine. Nice. And when did you take up drawing? Also at a um, very early age, like I, I have still have these old sketchbooks when I was only, I think three or four, like really really young, and I'm always all, all, always was were try was trying to to make some comic, you know some comic uh, not really comics but more comics illustrations because uh, because I had trouble, you know in in, in discipline of course, as a kid. But um, my father told me not to uh, copy things, and that was a really good thing. So I tried to, um, it's like a spoof of, of the Flintstones, you know, like uh, uh, my own kind of Flintstones and my own kind of Donald Duck. So I made all these characters up that were just so I could get around my father, you know, not copying them, but still... <laughs> Still, they were very much similar to the real thing. So music is a big thing for you, like you just said, too. When did you fall in love with music? I think there was a TV show in Holland. It's called Top Up. It's, it's something like Top of the Pops. And every kid was watching that. You know, there was not only uh, the music was, of course, very important, but it was always also something, you know, if you didn't, watched uh, Top of the Pops, our Top of the Pops, and you weren't really, you know, you weren't coming along. You no, you're not, uh, that was something to do when you were, I don't know, 11, 12, you know, watching with the bigger kids. So um, that made a big impression on me because I already loved music, but then you see um, the way um, it's, it's more like a, a way of life. You know, uh, the, the way those musicians and in those days, all the guys were makeup and, you know, looked very extravagantly. And I thought, wow, that's a world. That's a world. I want to be part of that world, you know, because it was after hippies and all. And hippies were something of the old, the much older kids. And that was something I knew I couldn't grasp because that was something it had to do with all all sorts of things that I didn't know. I didn't know anything of, but these guys were just, you know, rocking and acting weird and makeup and it was the days of, of course, of David Bowie and Alice Cooper and Iggy Pop premiered on that show also. So, um, yeah, that was kind of the origin. And you used to do comic reviews of 
gigs. Right? Yeah, that was much later. <laughs> that was much later. But um, yeah, as as uh, when I went to high school, I I, I did a lot of portrayal of pop artists and most more about songs you know making stories of songs and then later on when I was already working as an illustrator as a comic artist for uh, I think probably a couple of years I think two years or something I went to um, to the concerts to do uh, live concert reviews I went to the concert. I, I, I made something up front because uh, it was for a newspaper, so they wanted to have the, the, the comic review the, the next day in, uh, in the morning newspaper. So um, I did something up front of the artists. The, the first show I went to was uh, by James Brown. And um, so I did something in general about James Brown and something funny and then that particular time I went to the show in the I went to the he was playing in the Paradiso here in Amsterdam so I went to uh, Paradiso, Paradiso the afternoon and um, just hang around there to um, speak to um, the, the guys in the uh, that were opening up for him and the people in Paradiso uh, really liked the idea but they said well we can't have any journalists here. So whenever anybody from from James Brown's crew is coming, you know, you better better grab something and pretend you're you're working here. So I hang around all day, and um, and when the bus was coming in, I pretended to unload something. So I got a pretty good view. Talked to the bus driver and all the people. Didn't talk to James Brown, of course. So I'm entering, and then uh, after the concert, then I had to go home, and you know I couldn't drink too much at the concert because while the concert was was still going on, I had to think of some things and funny moments, and uh, then at night I would do the comic, and it would have be ready something at um, I think six or seven was my deadline. No, probably before that. No, probably five or six. Yeah, because it was for. Early newspaper. Wow. Who else did you do like that? First day, I, I had a choice of artists, so I went. I wanted to do all the the really big ones because it was sort of I got a real big space for it, so I thought it has to be something a lot of people can appreciate. So I went to Rolling Stones, to Dolly Parton, to Christina Aguilera. George Michael, Bob Dylan, yeah, the really big ones. But then all the the journalists uh, and and photographers started hating me because when I went there, they didn't need anyone to write or take pictures because I did both. So and I took up a lot of space. So uh, <laughs> you know, there were a lot of people when when they changed when there was a new editor coming. I was the first to go. I knew that. So when did you first become aware of Andy Warhol? You mean in general or? Yeah. Probably in art school, I think. I didn't have much of an art upbringing before I went to art school. I had probably seen things of him because it's almost impossible to grow up without him. But um, that I fully became aware, that must have been in art school, I think. What first attracted you to his work? Well, uh, to be honest, in art school, I wasn't 
art was a new thing for me, so I went for the more for the craftsmanship at first. I was more into like Picasso and Max Beckman and the, just because I admired their way of, of, of drawing. I didn't have any art classes in high school, so I mainly read comics, and that was my upbringing. I don't come from a very cultural background, so it all started. I, did, I had never heard of Henri Matisse when I entered art school, which made students and teachers laugh, but I caught him pretty quickly. and. Um, it was just like, you know, first seeing pop music. This was also a world I knew I wanted to, you know, be part of. So I was very eager and saw a lot of things. And we went on a lot of uh, art trips with school. But Andy Warhol is sort of, uh, one hand, he is, um, he's very low level um, to be attractive to all sorts of people. You don't have to have a big art background but he has this sort of second layer which is um, better to appreciate if you know something about art i think so i really caught on that was when i really caught on that was years later probably after art school even or at the end of it and when did you have the idea to do the book <laughs> that was when i finished uh, my book on on rembrandt I finished in 2013, so around that time, I think, even before I finished, I have one little sketching somewhere between, uh, uh, in between the Rembrandt sketches, there's one, already a page of, of Andy Warhol, what I, just, just a quick idea that I noted down. So you finished one huge book and then wanted to jump right into another? Basically, yes, yes, that's more or less what I did. How was working on Andy different than doing the Rembrandt book? Well, first of all, Rembrandt was a commission, of course. It was commissioned by the Rijksmuseum. So I had to deal with a lot of people, though um, of those, uh, the museum themselves were the easiest to get along with. They gave me total freedom, which was really incredible, I think. But still, you had to, you know, it was, especially the start was kind of hard for me because I had to deal with so many people and there were, you know, I had to go to meetings and that sort of thing. And that's not really my cup of cola, no. And also the fact, uh, well, probably the greatest difference, the biggest difference is um, that there's so much more documents. There are so much more documents and, and written and filmed and about Andy, there's so many films and um, and books to read, and everything is you know registered, if not by others, then by Andy himself. You know, every visit to the toilet has been taped extensively. So, uh, and that's not the case with Rembrandt because there are very few uh, written documents, you know, first-hand things that is. That's a leaflet, I mean, altogether. There are, of course, a lot of things about him, about his art, books, but about his life. Oh, well, there's, there's, there's mainly just facts. You know, um, when he's married, you know, documents 
of marriage, of, of, of the burial of his wife and um, of his son. So, yeah, there's a lot of speculation, of course. And, uh, and the things we, um, we know about Raymond are always sort of secondhand, sort of romanticized sources from mostly the 19th century, but much later than, um, than, than his own period. So Andy was such an enormous undertaking. Tell me about all the research involved. How did you go about it? Yeah, uh, I think um, I worked five years altogether. I think the first two years were mainly only um, reading and, and watching things. And, and uh, when I read a book, I immediately begin, begin to uh, underline things in the book itself. And because you also have a lot of books dealing with the same period. Most books are deal with uh, his most successful period um, of the 60s, of course. Uh, so um, I don't know how many books I read, but um, a couple of meters. And first uh, I was just reading and underlining and then I rewrite all these facts. But then, you know, you take some of this book, some of that book, but to get a sort of chrono chronological sort of account of his life. But very soon I, I'm concentrated on things I could use. Uh, all the known facts are of sometimes of less importance for me than uh, the small little details you pick out from a book. Sometimes a book only has one really good detail. So, okay. yeah, and, and also there are a lot of different views on the same uh, occasions, which is also good to read. And you traveled to Pittsburgh and New York? Yeah, about halfway. Um, so I think in I think in 2016 that I went to uh, Pittsburgh and New York. There were two reasons. Um, the, the most important reason, or the, the, the first reason, was that I had to speak with Andy Warhol Foundation because, um, of course, they own all the rights and um, it was getting a bit complicated. And um, my publisher, Kasteman uh, in France, at a certain point, he said, uh, we think it would be better if you just, you know, went there and spoke to them personally because this is getting all too official and we're getting nowhere um, in my first, the first contact um, with the foundation was by me also. So um, then I spoke to the the literary fund here in uh, Holland and um, explained my situation. And immediately they said, "Well, okay, you you go to New York." And then I thought, "Well, if I'm going to travel, then I really would like to go to Pittsburgh too, because I had no." clue about Pittsburgh. You can find a lot of things, of course, online, but I'm so happy to have been there just to see, um, because you can still walk around in Andy's past there, the, the neighborhoods where he grew up, more than you can in, in New York, because everything's changed in New York, of course, over the years, and but not in Pittsburgh. If you go to his neighborhood where he was born, which was really uh, the most poor and uh, beyond working class almost uh, neighborhood. It's still the same there. And uh, some of 
at least one is it's the most important house where he lived in is still there just intact and still owned by the family i heard but it was it, it made a huge difference to have been there and i spoke to a lot of people and also because there is the best museum uh, on warhol of the world uh, is in pittsburgh of course and i went there every day and i got the chance to even speak to his um, nephew, uh, the son of his brother, Paul. So I got some first-hand information from him, finally, from someone, because a lot of people in his surroundings aren't alive anymore, of course. But I also went to a place of his youth, like his old school and the, his old high school, and um, also to the church where he and his family used to go where still his his old community is still um, it's it's a, a Rusin Carpathian uh, church and um, the Rusin Carpathian people don't really have a country but um, they sort of spread around the globe but there's I think the highest population of, of Rusin Carpathians is, is living in in Pittsburgh so when I went to the church uh i immediately you know i stood out there because everybody knew each other and uh i, I got in contact with um uh, a woman there who uh, was very enthusiastic that i brought to attention to the world that he was not a slovakian or a polish or whatever you read on the internet uh but a russian carpathian at least his parents are and um she uh, translated some of the Rus and Carpathian part, parts in my book. And uh, I got a lot of, you know, information from her. And um, so, yeah, you know, it was a very fruitful journey. Both of the journeys were very fruitful. So what was the most difficult part of his life to research? I think to research, everything can be found. Um, of course, as I said, most attention goes to his most successful period, as it is with any artist. But to write was something else. There were some periods that were extremely hard for me to, you know, to to get in the book to because it's such a long story and it's such a complicated story. You have to cut off a lot of th- cut out a lot of things. Some parts were really, really. Uh, well, well, causing me a lot of trouble to get him into the story. Um, they were very hard to do. Uh, as For instance, the, the story about Edie Sedgwick, that really set me back a month or so because I was struggling with that material. Not not that it wasn't interesting, because it is. It very much is, but it's so tragic and it was so... It's sort of in the in the first half of the book, so relatively in, in the start of the story, if you have such a heavy part it sort of yeah slows down everything and it makes you know it, it, it changes the color of the book the, the mood color so much if you have a part like that in the, in, the, in the beginning and not long after that comes the part with the uh, radical feminist uh, uh, Valerie Solanas who shot him um, so that was also a grim part so I had to you know get some um, get some air in it at a point with Edie Sedgwick. So it was 
struggling in the way uh, how I should tell it. Uh, the story um, that was pretty hard, and it did some different versions in sketch, and eventually um, I found um, as the story is, goes now, it's it's done like a sort of uh, romantic comic. As I haven't haven't said before, uh, this story has 10 parts which are all done in a different style because it's such a long story 562 pages at first i thought it would be um you know the sort of demanding of the reader if it was all in different styles but as i was getting along i saw it was the other way around because a long story told in the same way is sort of more puts more of a strain on the reader i think than because um in this way, you have 10 very different parts, and I advise the readers to read it one by one. It's just, they're all made up like little books, and um, it has the convenience that you you sense the atmosphere of the time more, because it's all done, every part is done in a sort of style of, of the period that the story takes place in. So um, you you go along with Andy from the 30s to the 80s, through the 60s and the 70s. I think um, I'm, I'm I'm very happy that I decided to do that because uh, I think it's it's it, it was nicer to do. Also, it was much much more of because if you do if you work five years on one story, it's also nice to have um, different different periods for yourself. But I also I also think think that for the reader it's 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 much nicer um, and easier to read actually. Yeah, that, I totally get that. It was cool too, you know. Every time you're moving to something that looks strikingly different than the last. Yeah, it also uh, slows down um, the speed of reading because uh, when you do comics, it's not like uh, you know it's not yeah just like like in in, in literature that you only read read. Um, the lines, not only uh, the text, it, you also have to read uh, the images. A big part of what you're doing is slowing the reader down just to get him into the right pace and to, you know, not just skip reading, go to the next panel as quickly as possible to see what he's saying, but there's a lot going on also in the image. So if you change, every change of style sort of slows down the reader because he has to get accustomed again to the new style and to the new uh, surroundings what were you looking at for inspiration with each of the different styles the uh, the velvet underground chapter really reminded me of the adventures of jodel oh well you're you're an expert actually you're the, you're the second one to notice that and the other one was belgian so <laughs> and uh the 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 adventure of jodel are by guy pelaert who is a belgian uh, who was a belgian artist i think I don't think he's alive anymore. He's more famous for his uh, his airbrush uh, drawings uh, in Rock Dreams. If you Google him, you first get to see those, but um, which are pretty cool too. But this is really uh, his, his style is really extravagant. It's actually it's not from the sixties and it's not American, but it looks more American and and sixties than anything I've ever seen. Because it's such sort of a, I also do a, a, an American story and um, as a European, but I think it, it, it gives you a sort of distance 
and and he has the same thing with his um, with his not really psychedelic style. I don't know how to call it. It's it's basically it's pop art. I I would call it pop art what he does. But it's uh, well, people should check it out. It's really great. I really love, especially Jodell is my favorite. So that's the only chapter I really based on on an artist. Well, a little bit in in the, uh, later on when I do some um, tributes, I would call them to uh, to the style of Tom of Finland. But um, for the rest of it, it's just sixty ish ish sixties ish or seventies ish. What I do, not really literally taking one artist or maybe in the, in the thirties I. I take some of um, of Crazy Cat and uh, a little bit of Little Nemo, but it's always I always sort of do a a mixture of styles. So it more has the feeling of of that time. It's not important that it's one artist that I'm I'm doing. Did you work in sequence or did you jump around from style to style? No, I'm I'm very conservative. I always have to work from A to Z. No, I have to see it as the re- reader sees it. I also work in spreads. I draw two pages that are together in the book. I draw them on the same sheet of paper because I, I really have to picture it uh, in the way the, the reader sees it. So, yeah, no, I never fool around with that <laughs> though when i'm writing i do that all the time then i i always how do you call a, a folio where you can remove the, the sheets we call it multi multi mop but that's a crazy word i don't know how you call it you know the the, the inlays you can change them around i always do my sketching and i place them in a book like this so i can constantly change the, um, the sequence and 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 then I can get back to somewhere in the start because then I change something there so it will come out better. I mean, 200 pages later, for example, um, uh, when at first I was sketching, uh, nobody could imagine we would have Donald Trump as president. But I thought it, well, in that unlikely case, I knew he, he had met up with Andy on one occasion. So that's going to be in the book. That has to be in the book. So um, I had to sort of get that in somewhere. And I, I thought, well, that would be even nice if there was a reference way early in time. So, yeah. So that's easy. Well, well once I'm done with that, you know, when it's all written down, then um, I, I still improvise main, main, mainly on text and the way I draw it. But um, mostly I just go on. I just, I just, then it's clear what I have to do every day. You have to have some sort of schedule because, uh, and some structure, because if you don't, you get mad. <laughs> so each chapter comes with 12 cutout profile cards of characters that are in the chapter. When did that idea come to you? Well, very early, I think, because I saw the problem that uh, there were so many side characters or main characters actually throughout the book that I thought it would be good for the reader to have some track to keep some track that you can you know leave back to uh, whoever that was but also then you can have somebody in it and you don't have to explain every time if, if you have you know some famous character or famous artist 
And it's so unnatural to have people explain, oh, here comes Robert Rauschenberg, you know, the one who did this and that. And, and that's Bill de Kooning, you know, he was actually from Holland. You no, know, that, that slows down the story in a sort of irritating way. I noticed you didn't refer to Trump as president on his card. I take it that was on purpose? Yeah, it's also a sort of, it's not totally serious, the biographies. I, I did a biography on Fred Flintstone, which is pretty accurate as far as I could trace him back and also on, on Mary of Nazareth. And, uh, but even of, of David Bowie, I, I have more, I lay more emphasis on his uh, mime career than on his uh, singing career, which, com- which comes after that. And you refer to Crumb as one of the greatest comics artists to ever walk the earth. Yeah, I do the same with David. David Bowie also, uh, one of the greatest musicians or whatever. I don't know precisely what I said. Yeah, there's some uh, fandom. <laughs> a little a little fanboy in me uh, demanded that I do that. Yeah. I didn't know you were such a big fan of Crumb. Uh, well, everyone should be. He's sort of the originator of everything we see. And that's why, because he never met up with Andy Warhol or the Velvet Underground, as far as I know. But um, I put him in the story anyway, because I think he it's very important for uh, the way we we see a lot of the, the 60s, uh, especially the underground. He changed uh, the vision just as uh, our vision of the 60s is formed for a big part by Robert Crumb and other artists, I think, uh, as well as um, the way we see the 80s is formed by the drawings of Tom of Finland. So what other comics artists do you hold in such high esteem? Yeah, t- too many to name now, but um, uh, I think uh, Daniel Klaus is one, still one of my favorites uh, because of its way you rise and of course uh, a lot of other contemporaries and um, I'm, I'm just only starting to appreciate the, the, the French comics but I still have to get very much into it because um, I grew up with French comics but um, well, very soon it was all taken over by the Americans but but as my 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 greatest inspirations are always um, Will Eisner and, and Harvey Kurtzman the, the old Mad Magazine was done by uh, Harvey Kurtzman and uh, Will Eisner, of course, is famous for his spirit comics. And um, Italian uh, uh, artist Giacofitti, I also love him. He's also a big inspiration. How did your feelings towards Andy Warhol change over time as you made the book? Well, as I said, a lot of time went into conception of the book. And um, that was most of the, my, my, when I started the book, I already had this sort of conception of, you have, you have to have some, a, a clear image of him, as uh, visually as well as, as, uh, as emotionally, psychologi- psychologically, because you can't deviate anymore from that. You have to have some sort of image that, that, that is grounded in your head. So most of that, um, the getting used to him and, and getting to know him uh, all comes in the, in the writing uh, phase. When I first started, I had, I think, a sort of general idea of him. Like he was a 
very difficult man and um, very hard to grasp. I mean, he comes um, when you see him uh, in 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 uh, TV interviews and that sort of thing. He really, you know, he comes across as a total moron and 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 verging on the autistic and and very. Um, uh, he's constantly, you know, he doesn't have um, 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 just like me at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's constantly looking for words and and a lot of uh and ah uh and and yes and no, short answers. Always telling people that he doesn't know what he's doing, and and you're always asking other people for advice, and that's the impression he really wants us to have so much is clear and um a lot of his uh contemporaries um share that opinion people who work with him like paul morrissey who made a lot of films with him uh if you hear him now even in in 2018 he still you know he can't get over his his contempt and his his sort of raging uh, ranting about Andy always about how what a complete idiot he was and imbecile and he didn't do anything and everything was done by others well it's funny that he still I mean how long has he been gone now Andy it's pretty incredible he's still angry at Andy did you learn anything in your research that surprised you about him well um having uh, read and seen that, that negative image that most people have and even the image that you get from a lot of biographies are mildly said not very positive but uh, the change when I read the diaries which are closest I think to his um, his own way of, of thinking and speaking and diaries only consist of gossip and whining but in such a humorous way that I immediately took on to him. And, and that, that was when I really started to like him and love him. And that even got better or worse when I met up with his nephew in Pittsburgh. And I heard, and also the, the people of the Rusin community that knew his family and the way they all thought of him, which, which was so... Uh, warm and lovingly and um, they wouldn't have anything of they wouldn't have any of those you know all the all the things that are in the media and are told about him so I'm not saying that the the other part isn't true but I think there are more sides to him than uh, you would think at first glance and I try to no I don't I'm, I'm not People who read my book won't necessarily all fall in love with his character, but I think they have the chance the chance to do. Um, it, it all depends on your own character, how much you you know you cope with him, or how you you get along with him. But um, I try to offer as many insights as I can. My favorite image in the book is at the top of page 182. I'm showing this to Tipex now <laughs> for the listener of Edie and her father and different oh, sides. Yeah. I think there's a lot of this throughout the book where you capture the sort of duality 
of him be, being this incredibly social figure who surrounded himself with people, but at his heart, he's, you know, he won't reveal anything about himself. I think visually you do that a lot in the book where there's this duality that shows the two different images next to one another that show this. Yeah, what I really like uh, about uh, doing comics is that you can show a different story in images than you do in text. That's going on for a, a lot of time in my books. You know, I never try to underestimate the reader. I'm, I'm not very literal in the, the way um, I try to um, convey uh, things or feelings about something. But there are a lot of clues. So... The images uh, you're you're so fond of <laughs> that tells a lot more than than what can be said. If you would describe these images, they would be totally lost. Uh, they would totally lo lose their meaning. So, and also the, the, the different. You can do that in film, of course, also. But here, the static image and the sort of illustration kind of thing and the way you draw it. I don't know. It all. Yeah, that, that, that's why I really love doing comics because it's sort of it's a whole different area. What did you learn about yourself while you were making the book? <laughs> um, did I learn about myself? Well, as I sometimes jokingly say, uh, I made another auto autobiography about an artist. Uh, this autobiography deals with Andy. Um, there's always a lot of, of yourself. You, you, you're your only reference. Some people ask me, do you think you completely understand Andy now? I think, and then, well, that, that cannot be because that, that would mean that he would completely understand himself. And um, for all of us, that's almost impossible. So you learn about yourself in a way you look at others. And that's the way I learn about myself, doing biographies about other people. And um, the only basis I have for, you know, conveying feelings and, and uh, to get a contact with the reader is to reach within myself and to compare to things I've lived through. Or So there's, there's a lot of the, the, the books, uh, my, my last two books about Rembrandt and, and, and Andy. I think there are, there's more emotion in those two than I have put in previous work. That's something I really learned from doing the biographies because you're dealing with live people. Even if you create something out of your own imagination, you're sort of obliged to you know, make them flesh and blood. So, yeah, you learn, learn a lot about yourself. And, uh, and uh, it's often, uh, I, I laugh at my own jokes, I cry at my own uh, tears, you know. <laughs> so how did you feel when you finished it? I thought I would be very relieved, but that moment still hasn't really come, because now I'm sort of anxious how it's going to go from here on with the book, and if people, you know, pick it up. And um, yeah, so I think uh, five years is too long. I've I know now to, of course, I could have guessed that up front, but now I know for sure that it's much too long because there's sort of neurotism that it's hard to shake off after you've finished. But I think it, it will, you know, it will go gradually, but you always imagine it to be like, like a magic moment.
once you lay down your pencil and then it'll all be over and then you know freedom will start but it's getting better all the time (laughs) (laughs) if five years is a long time what else were you working on during that time you mean Uh, hardly anything you know at 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 the beginning i um of course i needed some money also to do this so at the first couple of years I did sort of, I had two jobs doing doing Andy and doing illustration in my spare time, but uh, it was really something like, I don't know, 70, 30% in favor of Andy. And that got worse. <laughs> and the last, when I started drawing, then I dropped all other, because um, I, 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 the first three years, I, I, I made a sort of sketched version of the whole book, which is, sketch version of I don't know more than 500 pages so that I could show it to other people also because I had to sell the idea because I uh, contrary to the the last project this wasn't a commission so yeah you have to sell it you can't just tell the story so I had to make uh, comprehensive uh, sketching some of them are really sort of elaborate already also to show to the foundation and all that sort of thing. So uh, that took me three years. And uh, all the while I still did some uh, commission work to, to, uh, to keep me alive. And then for the last two years, I had an advance, because then the book was already sold, and I had an advance for my publisher. The last two, two and a half years, I'm not sure for how long. Of course, that wasn't enough because... Uh, it's it's such a long time, you know. You can the, the, these sort of amounts aren't uh, yeah. regular in, in in the world of comics. So um, so now I have to work hard on commission work again on illustration to you know, to fill the gap. So what are you working on now? Well, I have to do uh, some illustration, but I am also sketching for a new book, I think. <laughs> But it's still very fake. As I told my publisher, when he asked what I was going to do next, I told him, there's one thing I know for sure I won't be doing, that to make another biography. Okay. And they were very pleased with that. So I was very pleased with them saying that. <laughs> no, they said it's uh, it's better now to, to work. Now you have some you know recognition, some people that know your work by now and now it's time to let them see you know not depending on another artist but to do your own stuff i'm i'm working on it in my head and i'm uh i've made some sketches it's going to be stories it's going to be stories or different stories but hopefully um making up one big story cool so my final question is always say you had stolen a space shuttle and we're flying it directly into the sun. What would you want to be listening to? <laughs> you old music nerd. It's hard because I have this feeling every night. And I know um, my problem is always if you imagine something, then it can only, you know, be a disappointment. It's, uh, I think I would turn the player on shuffle. Nice. No, because I when when I was working, I listened to all my CDs, but I did it blindfolded. 
my Russian roulette CD playing. So I went to the my enormous collection. I got one out of it, and I put it on blindfold or with my eyes closed, and um, I put uh, the button on shuffle, and then see if I even recognize it. And then you hear that most of the times I was playing albums I hadn't listened to in, in years and years, and some of them I didn't even recognize immediately. And then the next rule was, if I can't listen to it all the way through, then I throw it away, not keep it to, to, you know, to sell it or whatever. I threw it in the bin immediately. If I can't listen to it all the way, then it's worthless. Wow. And you still have a huge CD collection after that. Yeah. Yeah, but I threw a lot of them away. I think something like 50 or so. Wow. Maybe 100. I hope it, it was 100. <laughs> <laughs> Always a pleasure to talk to TipX. Definitely check out Andy. It's a fantastic book. I'll be putting show notes up at thecounterforce.net with some pages from Andy and links to my review of his Rembrandt book and some of the artists he mentioned. Some news from me. I've been doing Young Southpaw shows and I've got the weekly podcast going at youngsouthpaw.com. Give that a listen and I'll be in the Northeast in December and January. So let me know if there are any cool places to do surreal comedy in your town. I'd love to come play. Back in 2015, Tipex and I ended up riding the same train back to Paris after the Angoulême Festival. And as usual, we talked a lot about music. He was telling me what a big Van de Graaff generator fan he is and about the times he's seen Peter Hamill. And this got me excited to check out Hamill's work, which I didn't know much about at the time. So when I got home, I bought his Chameleon in the Shadow of the Night album. So I'm going to leave you with my favorite song off that, Slender Threads. Picture in the evening standard. You were wearing your battle dress. Oh, well, I really must confess that I shed a silent smile for you. It had really blown. And I wonder, are you still so kind? Are you still so pure? There are other rhymes around here somewhere But I'm really not too sure how they fit Jenny Penny, for your thoughts, I wonder how you're thinking now. I hesitate to visualize. Our worlds are much too different, that's a sign of the time. But time was when I read your thoughts. Remember what they were, but anyhow, I missed the cast so 
goodbye Do you think I'd recognize you by your hair or by your mind? Well, we start out together But the parts all divide When there are no more I open my eyes and I find I'm walking on alone through the snowy cold. Yes, man, I wonder if I'm gonna make it through the I'm an author and an actor too You're a model in the zoo I'm just thinking on which side of the bars Am I looking through? If I prophesied an avalanche Wait and call my bluff If I gave you just a little song Would that be enough to say Your life Or is the knife Already turning in my hand